M-S-W Media. So, Renato, will Republicans be able to prevent the new Wisconsin Supreme Court justice from ever hearing a case? Uh, It's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangapa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, um, it was a big, big deal when, uh, when the Democrats took control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court in the last election by a very wide margin. Uh, Janet Proseowitz won um, uh, the, the kind of swing seats, as you will, on the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court by, I think, about 11 percentage points. It was not a close uh, election. But one thing that's happening right now is essentially the Republicans control both houses of the of the state house, and they are threatening to impeach um, ju- uh, the justice um, and essentially put her in a sort of limbo, uh, which I think is a- a- an unbelievable. I mean, we talk about various sort of um, power moves, chicanery, you know, various uh, various machinations that uh, Republicans use in various states to stay in power. But essentially, the threat is that they will impeach the justice in the lower house in the assembly. And then instead of proceeding to a trial, because that would potentially cause some of their swing Republicans to have, um, you know, uh, some difficult votes, they're just going to keep her in limbo. And there's a provision in Wisconsin that if you're impeached, uh, you, you can't, until that gets resolved, you can't hear any cases. And so essentially the Republicans are threatening to put the justice in a situation where they've effectively nullified, they've created a a deadlock on the court. They've effectively nullified the election just through a machination that they're able to do. It's it's really, I think, a rather amazing story. Yes. And just to get to what the basis for this is. So first, um, the Wisconsin Constitution authorizes the legislature to impeach elected officials for, quote, corrupt conduct in office or for crimes and misdemeanors. The factual basis that they are accusing the justice of is that she accepted a contribution during her campaign. This is, you know, Wisconsin Supreme Court justices are are elected. Um, She accepted contributions from the Democratic Party, and they claim that because of that, she can't rule fairly on a redistricting case, which, by the way, the Democratic Party is not a party to that case. Um, and that in an interview during the campaign, she voiced her opposition to partisan gerrymandering. So basically, this is it kind of dovetails with our discussion last week about, you know, the basis for recusal when there's either. um a sense that you can't rule impartially or a perception, but whether or not you should recuse and whatever the rules are for that in Wisconsin is very different than the 
legal standard for impeachment, which is a much, much more serious thing. Um, because obviously impeachment is a, you know, is a form of checks and balances to be used only in situations where you know, a member of another branch has completely exceeded their constitutional or lawful authority. That's right. Now, I want to note a few things here, and because I think you set it up very well, Asha. First of all, she's never heard a single case. So this is not like she did something crazy, right, uh, on some case. It's literally the things you're mentioning happened during the campaign. So that's the first thing. Secondly, all the justices accept money from various partisan groups. I mean, that's these state Supreme Court elections are very, you know, heavily contested, uh, particularly in a state where like Wisconsin, where there's, you know, there's so much at stake. Of course, there are different groups that donate. So it's not like she's some pioneer, the first one who accepted campaign donations. Uh, there's some of the Republicans also, of course, have taken campaign donations, for example, from Republican Party party and party officials. But also separate from that, um, her comments were more generally about redistricting as a practice and, and as opposed to, I'd say, you know, getting down to the legal merits of a specific case. I think that's always a tricky thing, by the way, for judges and justices. You know, I will tell you, I did support a candidate um, in Illinois for uh, Supreme Court justice who did win and was the swing vote here. It's probably the reason we have reproductive freedom uh, still in the state of Illinois. Um, and I, I would, you know, I had to, you know, I was at different events for her and she had to be very careful, right, about how she's, how she talked about certain things. I think elections are always challenging for judges because, of course, you know, voters are interested in your views on issues, but you, you know, you can't in fully anticipate how those things are going to play out in, in later um, litigation. I think, ju you know, the, one could be critical uh, of how a justice answers a particular question without trying to th throw them out of office or put them in this weird limbo uh, due to impeachment, you know, via impeachment. Yes, and I did. I want to just emphasize that, as far as I can tell, there's no allegation that this contribution was unlawful. That's and right. the standard, the impeachment standard, is for corruption while in office. And she hasn't even, you know, like you said, like she hasn't even ruled on a case yet, so it doesn't, or a crime or misdemeanor. And so that threshold has not been crossed. And again, you know, I think you can. You know, you could argue um, that her comments bring her impartiality into question, but impartiality is not, you know, or, or bias isn't corruption. I mean, these are these are very different things. Um, and I'm reading here from an article uh, written by an opinion piece written by Norm Eisen, our colleague for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and he notes that. Um, one of the conservative justices, Brian Hagedorn, has referred to Planned Parenthood as wicked, uh, likened same-sex relationships to bestiality, and dubbed Christianity as the only, quote, correct religion. And then another conservative justice, Rebecca Bradley, wrote that abortion rights equated to giving women, quote, the right to murder their own flesh and blood. So the point is, if we're going to talk about comments that, you know, might call into question 
justices' impartiality uh, when it comes to things that they may be looking at, it seems like there's a lot to go around and maybe there's a debate to be had on, you know, which cases these different justices ought to recuse from. But I think what this gets to, Renato, is kind of a very blatant and cynical attempt, and we're seeing this increasingly across the country, of a weaponization of democratic processes and guardrails for anti-democratic purposes. And it's it's very alarming. I mean, I think that this is of a piece with, for example, the expulsion of those three Tennessee lawmakers, right, right. under this very uh, arc not arcane. I mean, it was a rule that was there for the legislature had never been used before and then was used against, you know, these three lawmakers for expressing their views on a contentious issue. And, um, you know, it's trying to it, it it's really a form of. Um, I mean, this is, we, we see this in authoritarian regimes, right? Like kind of, and it's sort of the new wave of authoritarian rule is to have the trappings of democracy, but then to kind of utilize the processes or rig them in ways that entrench a particular party and, and consolidate its power, which is not how democracy works. Right. I mean, you can have a vote and not be a dem- actually democratic. You can, I think, Napoleon had a vote to determine whether he's proclaimed emperor, right? I mean, you can have, uh, you can have all sorts of votes, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean, um, that you have a democratic society. I, I will say that here, what you already have in Wisconsin is a heavily gerrymandered state, you know, state legislature. That uh, and, you know, Republicans have gotten at times to say a very slim majority, but have these super, 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 super majorities in the legislature due to to the gerrymandering. And so this is a further way of entrenching their power. And really, you know, if they you know are able to put her on ice, let's just say for a long period of time or maybe indefinitely, or if they you know manage to remove her from office either way. They really are undoing an electoral result. It's even going further than the gerrymandering. I mean, instead of skewing election results, they're undoing it. Now, there have been some moves recently that suggest that maybe the the Republican speaker in Wisconsin is backing off this position. Um, And if that's the case, it may be a rare circumstance in which public discourse, uh, you know, it matters. But obviously... We don't know. There's a, you know, we, 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 you know, I, I'll believe it when I see it, when it comes to Republicans sort of backing off of very extreme positions. And this is sort of trying to work around, it seems, the Supreme Court's decision in Harper v. Moore, right? So let's recall that there was this theory being floated out there, the independent state legislature theory which was that state legislatures are the ultimate and last say in ha- in administering elections um including drawing uh you know electoral maps and that they could not be checked even by their own state constitutions as interpreted by state courts 
Well, the Supreme Court said, yeah, no, that's not how it works. And they really, they talked about the role of checks and balances and how the constitutional provision giving state legislatures the right to determine the time, place, and manner of elections was understood to be, um, you know, uh, an institutional prerogative subject to the parameters of whatever the state uh, constitution and, and laws would uh, would dictate. Well, this is sort of a way to make the legislature unaccountable, right? So if you end up with a court, a state court that may interpret the constitution in a way that you don't like when it comes to elections, well, let's just, you know, uh, neutralize the justices on the court that might be able to do that. So they're trying to achieve the same result, Renato. Um, is it Alabama that is refusing to abide by a court decision on gerrymandering? Am I getting the state right? There's Yeah, Alabama, you're right. Yeah, trying to do a workaround uh, for outcomes that they don't like. And I, it, this gets to a bigger issue about the rule of law. Um, and I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's a Yale Law School professor named Tom Tyler who writes about institutional legitimacy and the rule of law and like, what is the rule of law? And the rule of law is not just, you know, processes and procedures, which are fair. It's a willingness to accept an outcome, even when that outcome is not in our favor. That's sort of the agreement that we all come to, whether it's elections, whether it's court decisions, whether it's laws that are passed by appropriate procedures. You know, we agree that we're going to follow them. And I think the alarming thing with this is this is basically a defiance of the rule of law in a number of respects, both in the electoral process in terms of accepting the election result here, and also, I think, a Supreme Court decision that they don't like. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it reminds me of Trump's comments, right? Of course, I'll accept the, ele- the results of the election if I win, right? It, it's, that's really ultimately a cuts to the heart of, you know, whether someone actually respects our institutions. It's interesting, of course, we do have, and I, I do want to mention, you know, you have um, a, a really great Substack, uh, which people should be sub, uh, subscribing to. You you also, I think you're talking this week there about the the other impeachment that's going on, right? The the, I mean, I don't know whether it's a real impeachment or not impeachment inquiry i don't quote unquote i don't know what that yeah. is yeah the one that's trying to make burisma happen <laughs> just like trying to make Fetch happen say so trying to make burisma happen it's not gonna yeah. happen yeah it's not gonna happen but all in all i think that the point i think that the point i'm just trying to say is we're starting to see some of these institutions which you know impeachment was the sort of thing that when let's say when we were in law school 20 some years ago was viewed as sort of a very rare occurrence in kind of an arcane, uh, you know, a, a park arcane procedure. You know, another when when Bill Clinton got impeached, I think he got impeached while we were in law school. Mm-hmm. Um, when that happened, it was like, wow, there's an an impeachment in our lifetime. This was so such an amazing thing, and of course now we're seeing both at the federal and state level impeachment being used as a political tool and really everything is on the table now. I mean, it was a, it was a political tool in the Clinton case too. That, that, I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair <laughs> to say, you know, the, the, the thing that stands uh, uh, different in the, in the Clinton case though, is in the Clinton case, 
um, there was a, um, a, a set of very specific allegations based on factual investigation, whether you agree with it or not, by Kenneth Starr and a very, you know, a broad team of people like Kit Red Kavanaugh and others. And I think in the, the current the current House impeachment uh, of President Biden, it's not clear what the allegations are. There's innuendo, but I don't think there's any specific allegations at all. Um, it, 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 they're, they're really akin to what we're talking about here with the Wisconsin justice, where it's like, what have you done? Like, you know, it's like, I don't know. You know, she made some comments. Like, it's just, it's very weird. Um, and I think there's political, then there's political. I mean, impeachment's always a political process. Um, I feel like the Bill Clinton impeachment, yes, it was political, but in a totally different, right? I think it's a totally different way. Mm-hmm. So I, I will be watching what happens in Wisconsin. I think that from my perspective, what I view Wisconsin is, you know, it, it's part of, it's actually, you know, we, we talk a lot on our podcast about how Donald Trump has impacted the Republican Party. To me, the move in Wisconsin is more like Mitch McConnell sort of Republicanism, where it's like, we're going to manipulate the processes to screw you, even if you won the election. Like, oh, you won the election? You think you're going to appoint a new Supreme Court justice, uh, President, President Obama? No, we're going to like not hold any hearings to manipulate this to go until after the election. I would go even farther back, Renato. I think this is not just Mitch McConnell politics. I think this has its roots in Newt Gingrich politics. Yeah. I agree. This is scorched earth, right? This is mm-hmm. anything goes and um, we will use every tool at our disposal to essentially make it so, you know, our op- opposition is completely paralyzed. Yeah. And, and ultimately, it's about winning, even if the cost is something deeper, right, in our in our in our country and our institutions become weaker. I mean, you could argue it was it's it's old time Bush republicanism, right? I mean, obviously there was, um, you know, very aggressive efforts at times uh, to to maintain and, and obtain power there. So, um, it 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 is something I think we should watch and pay attention to. One thing I will just say for everyone listening, it's also a reminder of how much how important state uh, officials are, how important state supreme courts are. Um, I think a lot of people pay a lot of attention and focus on national issues. We certainly do that on the podcast, but these state issues are awfully, awfully important. Yeah. And since we were talking about Substacks before, I'm just going to plug uh, my colleague from law, another law school classmate of ours, David Pepper, who has a Substack called Pepperspectives. And he has written a book called Laboratories of Autocracy. I actually had him on as a guest speaker for my Substack, uh, and that one is worth watching. But his his own Substack is really worth following, and he now has a voting rights course on his Substack, which you can do, which I plan on enrolling in because it really focuses on all of these, you know, anti-democratic efforts at the state level and sort of unpacking a lot of themes that he's written about in his book, which is called Laboratories of Autocracy. And it's really about all of these things happening at the state level that we're not even paying attention to. I mean, we are now on this podcast. (laughs) Now we are, are. um, at least least today. Okay, so... um, (laughs) 
uh, sort of Groundhog Day um, in Fulton County. And it looks like Jeffrey Clark has moved to remove his case from state to federal court. Same theory that Mark Meadows used. Um, the idea that he was, uh, I guess, acting under the color of his office as an official at DOJ at the time that he engaged in his conduct. He elected not to testify on the stand as uh, Mark Meadows did, um, but instead tried to submit an affidavit, which I understand was rejected by the judge. Um, yes. So. His, yeah, I'll just say a sort of a bottom line before we get into the specifics. Uh, he's put himself in a position where he's very unlikely, I would say, to get this motion granted. He was all, so this is more, you know, I, I, I described the Meadows move as a calculated risk. You know, well, it's an uphill battle, but, you know, they've got, you, know, you have limited options when you're indicted in a criminal case. So you, you have to take the sometimes, well, this is the least bad option we have is to try to fight uh, to get into federal court. Here, I think he's not even trying very hard. If you're not going to take the stand, he, he doesn't want, he's really trying to not take the risk. And so therefore his chances of getting the upside of it are very, very low, incredibly low. Um, but he always had a tough argument. I mean, essentially his argument. So Jeffrey Clark was, I believe, acting, right? Everything was acting in the Trump administration. He was acting head of the civil division. Am I right about that? Was yeah, it I, I'm just laughing because I would put acting, you know, in, in its many different meanings uh, for many <laughs> members of the of the Trump administration. So, right. yes, but he was he was like technically capital yeah. A acting. Um, yes. Yeah. Acting head of the civil division, <laughs> just so everyone understands. I mean, this is a little bit of an explainer here, right? The United States Department of Justice is divided into multiple divisions and other components. So we we talk a lot about United States attorneys' offices, um, and they are in different districts. Whether it's the Southern District of New York or the Northern District of Illinois, where I was, or the Northern District of Georgia, there are uh, U.S. attorneys' offices across the country prosecuting crimes in those districts. But in what's called main justice in the Justice Department in D.C., there are big divisions, the criminal division, the civil division, the antitrust division, and others. And essentially, the civil division, really, they represent the United States and you federal, um, and at times federal employees, in lawsuits that are filed against them. And they also have an affirmative enforcement um, uh, arm as well that conducts affirmative enforcement. Jeffrey Clark is, I think, famously discussed in January 6th was an environmental lawyer who would help, you know, with the United States as being, whether they're affirmatively or not, uh, you know, tackling environmental issues. He's that of the civil division. And essentially what he, what he supposedly did under color of law is draft a letter that he wanted to send, at, you know, to the, I believe, to the uh, to state officials, including, I think, Governor Kemp, right, saying that the Justice Department was, quote, investigating uh, allegations of fraud, colorful allegations of fraud, and therefore uh, they should not uh, certify their electors in And Georgia. that they should convene a special session. I mean, it was essentially laying out the blueprint that um, – or operation, trying to operationalize the blueprint – that John Eastman had laid out, that we call into question the electoral outcomes. We, um, in, in these different states, they should convene a special legislative session. They come up with an alternate slate of electors. 
Um, the litigation in the background we've discussed before was supposed to be kind of a pretext to make it look like, you know, all of these outcomes were in um, question. So Jeffrey Clark's part of the scheme was to write this letter, which essentially uses the credibility of the Justice Department to legitimize the allegations of voter fraud. I mean, this is all like an information warfare operation, right? Like this is, we're now using a completely false statement, but one that's coming from the Department of Justice because people tend to believe the Department of Justice. Um, and uh, to get that as a basis, you know, to, to give the proper credible context for these allegations. And the draft that he made of the Georgia letter was intended to go to six other states as well. Like he wanted to send a similar letter to six other states. I'm just putting that out there. No, this is very a really important context, Asha. I agree. I agree with that. Um, one thing that I would just say is, like you said, you one point you made that's really important. Okay, this is a false statement. Uh, in fact, he had been told, and there was testimony in the January sixth hearings about this. He had been told repeatedly that, first of all, he was not authorized to send any letters on behalf of the Justice Department. A, B, the Justice Department has no role in you know, determining how states conduct their local elections other than a very limited role. And this had nothing to do with that. And third, there had been no um, credible allegations. They had investigated. There had there was no credible evidence of voter fraud. What The reason that I laid out the background about how the Justice Department um, functions as well is that if anybody was going to be investigating allegations of voter fraud, it would not be the head of the civil division. <laughs> Maybe, maybe if somebody was suing uh, the United, you know, the United States of America for something, but it's it, it's not that that's not what they're talking about here. This would be an investigation conducted elsewhere, okay, um, in another division of the Justice Department, and this guy would have nothing to do with it. In fact, that was why. I mean, there was some derisive testimony for a call during the January six series, where they're like, "Hey, go back to you know." Go back to your environmental whatever, right? Uh, go back to, you know, we'll call you if there's a land spill. Um, that sort of thing. Because it just, he, he was in over his head. I mean, I think the fact that, you know, and this helps, I want to help our listeners understand the difference between him and Meadows. Meadows had a title, you know, White House Chief of Staff, right? Which is very broad. And you could say that giving the president advice and just chit-chatting with the president about ideas is part of his job title. This is like, you know, this guy's job title is much more narrow and specific, being the head of the acting head of the civil division. And what he was doing, very specific as well. And it's not in that in that silo, which makes his argument very, very weak. Also, when the agency for which you're working for investigates you and opens up a criminal case on you based on your conduct, that's kind of a clue that you may have been not operating under the color of law. So I think that's a big problem for him, too, is that, you know, he was being investigated by the was it Inspector General and uh, Office, of, Office of Professional Responsibility. I mean, there's an internal investigation that morphed into a federal criminal investigation, which I believe is also ongoing. I don't know what the resolution of that is. And... Um, you know, so that's going to also be an uphill battle because I assume that that 
would be something that could be brought in, but maybe not. Well, I don't know. he is an unindicted co-conspirator in January in the January sixth uh, indictment brought by Jack Smith, if I recall correctly. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, I, I, it's not going to be hard. This shooting fish in a barrel, uh, t- tackling the Jeffrey Clark argument. He did have some. Um, he did have some, uh, you know, big guns coming in. Ed Meese, who used to be Attorney General under Reagan, kind of a. You know, he's more in the in the in the wing of the Republican Party we talked about earlier, the New Gingrich, you know, uh, Bush slash you know McConnell wing of the Republican Party, like uh, power at all costs. One thing I'll say, speaking of unlimited power, power at all costs, you know, Jeffrey Clark is rumored, discussed heavily as the favorite to be the attorney general. In Trump oh, 2, God help us. the sequel, right? Electric Bugle You mean from, from Fulton County Jail? He's going to be the attorney general? Okay. Okay. Yay, you know. Um, so he's, you know, he's the guy who's going to be responsible for quashing the Mar-a-Lago case and Jack, you know, Jack yeah. Smith's January 6th case and so forth. So very interesting fellow. I blocked. He's I'm blocked on Twitter by Jeffrey Clark. So I don't know what he's saying, but I'm sure it's it's very. Yeah, pleasant. he blocked me too. I will add that the other difference between him and Meadows, and this may not matter legally, but I think it matters ethically and morally, is he's an attorney who was working for the Department of Justice, and so you know the fact that he was engaging in i mean making false allegations is just you know to me uh he ought to i mean and i think there are disbarment proceedings against him right or at least sanctions that have been pursued against him i mean that's really a a huge violation of professional ethics the um you know standards and norms of the justice department and basically you know conduct on becoming, I guess, you know, an official uh, and the top law enforcement official of the United States. So um, I think his case is actually really, really sad. He seems like a really pathetic individual to me. Wait, you didn't, you didn't, you said pathetic? Are you talking about the photo of him in his underwear uh, when they were conducting a search warrant at his house? Um, But in all seriousness, (laughs) um, you know, I think you know, Jeffrey Clark stylized himself as, you know, he was out there making these big allegations about fraud. And what's interesting to me, of course, as somebody who practices criminal law and has for a long time, is anyone who knows anything about criminal law would get the hell away from that letter. You have a letter that contains statements that you are being told in writing by your superiors are false. And you're like, no, I'm going to put this in a letter on Justice Department letterhead and send this out, which is like a, a basically you're creating a 1001 violations of a false statement in the course of a federal proceeding. Like it should be fairly trivial to prosecute him for that. I don't know why Jack Smith hasn't done that yet. Um, maybe he's getting his, getting his uh, ducks in a row, but that that strikes me as like he was like a, a low hanging fruit when it came to uh, when it came to that and and his uh, by the way and his status as an attorney would totally be used against him in a criminal case it, that happens all the time you if you're a justice department official they they trumpet that I mean if I was ever indicted all they would bring in all the cases I worked on and say that I should have mm-hmm. known better I'm held to a higher standard than somebody like you know you know somebody else just somebody else yeah and just on a quick point on the comparison between him and mark meadows i remember i forget which filing it was but mark meadows actually pointed to the fact 
that he wasn't identified as an unidentified co-conspirator in Jack Smith's indictment as kind of, you know, more evidence that he was acting in the color of under the color of law. Like he's I think basically the implication was, look, like, you know, there's been this indictment filed. Like clearly the special counsel is looking at people who also engaged in criminal conduct. I was not one of them. I'm just noted as a chief of staff. Um, and so there is that distinction. And of course, that cuts the other way for Jeffrey Clark, as you noted, because um, he's kind of implicated as violating the law in this, you know, in this other indictment, though not explicitly yet. Yes, indeed. So I don't think this is going to end well for Jeffrey Clark unless he ends up uh, establishing, uh, you know, the Justice Department uh, mobile headquarters in Fulton County Prison. So well, you never know. Stay tuned. So, Asha, uh, before we go, uh, it's t- it's getting close to that special time of year, Hall- Halloween. Uh, we have been very uh, intensely shopping for a costume for Henry. I don't know if you recall, but uh, a few months ago, we talked about how Henry, as he's grown up, is now all business. So he, you know, he's no longer like a little puppy, happy. He's like, you know, he'll come in and he's got places to go. So we're looking for a business suit for Henry so he can be because he's a businessman um, and he's all business. But we have not been able to find there's a lot of tuxedos. Hard to find good business suits uh, for a dog. Um, but we're working. Yeah, out. this is a good idea. I should look for a costume for um, Pancake because I think they have cat costumes. Oh, like, they do. I can make him into a spider or a shark or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, Pancake is very is much more pliant than my last cat. Um, I could never put my last cat in to a costume because I would have died in that battle. Um, so, but I think it's like giving a pill to your cat, like where your, oh my base, God. your face is going to yes, get Yes, I have off. so many scratches all over my body. Um, but pancake, I think I could, I could put a costume on. Here's the question. Do you dress up? So I, I'm ambivalent about Halloween. Like I like the holiday in theory, but it's like, there are people who go super all out and on Halloween night. I get really annoyed with people knocking on my door. So there comes a point where I just like turn off the lights and close my blinds and just leave candy out on the porch. So when I was a kid, I missed out on Halloween. My parents were like evangelical, did not, were like anti-Halloween. So I never got to experience the fun of Halloween when I was a kid. So I'm I'm still, uh, I'm still, I wouldn't say I'm bitter, but I missed out. Okay. On, on the fun of Halloween when I was a kid. So I've done it more at times than I've grown up, been grown up. But it, to me, you've got to have like a group and be into it, right? Like if you're all dressing up and going to some party and like that's fun, like Halloween can be fun, mm-hmm. like, right? You could have like a big party and do something. But like otherwise, like I'm not dressing up just to dress up. Uh, like it's just kind of lame, right? So you're not dressing up to put, give out candy. Yeah, I'm certainly not doing that. My wife gets into that sort of thing. 
oh, there's kids coming and they're so cute. And you know, that sort of thing. Like she just, she, she's over the moon with that sort of stuff. So she'll get all this candy. So we're the cool house or whatever she's trying to accomplish. That's fine. <laughs> whatever floats her boat, it makes her happy. But I was just not, I'm not going to get in a costume just for, for whatever, but it is kind of fun, right? Like if you've been to parties, like it's way more fun than like a kind of boring holiday where it's like, I mean, the, like Thanksgiving's got great food, but it's not like fun, right? In the yeah, same way. It's yeah. not like you're like dancing. Halloween Par- parties are fun. I, what's, what's yes. been your favorite costume? I, one year I dressed up as a stormtrooper and that was a big hit. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, it was a good costume. It was a good costume. So for a number of years, I used to be this big dude. So it was actually hard to get costumes that fit me very well when I used to be really large. So I'd be like trying to find things like, well, I guess I'm kind of a pirate uh, because I would have stuff like, you know, but now I have done, I mean, I had done a Sriracha um, uh, bottle one year, which was kind of cool. Like you have a t-shirt with Sriracha logo and you put like the little cone hat and then you look like a Sriracha bottle. I've done something like that. I don't, but I haven't done like, Super creative. I tend to my mind tend to be pretty boring. I've not done like, you know, I have this like cosplay and I look look super amazing. I think cosplay is really cool, by the way. I like looking at photos of people who put a ton of effort into having amazing costumes. It's just like I don't know if I have that level of energy when it comes to any holiday. Yeah. Are you gonna dress up this year? No. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna we're definitely gonna get the business suit for Henry. If we can find it, any, please put in the comments if you have any suggestions. There's one that my wife found that looks a lot like Trump. It's got like a Trump suit. Like he's got a blue suit with a red tie. It just looks, it reminds us too much of Trump. So we don't want like Henry to be, to look like Trump Jr. Um, Although maybe that would be kind of funny. It would be. Maybe he's MAGA. You don't know. We don't know. That's true. That's why he barks. He barks a lot. Um, so occasionally and during, uh, when I'm on a, during a segment, he's barking, 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 or he's licking my hand. Uh, one of the two, but he's, uh, he's, uh, he's definitely, uh, in hardcore businessman. So we got to, you know, maybe he's like Alex B. Keaton. Yeah. You know, Alex B. Keaton always had a suit on. He's like a hardcore businessman. Yeah. Young, young business. Yeah. You should, um, if you make him Alex B. Keaton, you want to have like a little picture of Richard Nixon kind of hanging from his neck. That's hilarious. Because you know how Alex B. Keaton had the portrait of Nixon on his <laughs> yeah. desk, like that was yeah. his idol. Wow. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know what what crimes Henry's trying to cover up, but maybe it was you know attacking the baby bunnies. That that might have been the uh, that, that might be the crime he's covering up. M S W Media. <laughs>